This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. The story of Laura Hernandez is a hard one to hear. She is the survivor of every type of abuse you can imagine. Living in a nightmare is the best way to describe Laura's childhood and formative years. Violence, chaos, and loneliness are also littered throughout her horrific memories. In her early 20s, Laura found herself serving a 27-to-life term in prison. However, while there, she spent her time learning learning from the therapist, partaking in every type of class offered, and even facilitating many classes on her own. It was these programs that eventually transformed her life. She came out a completely different and whole person. A story that begins with impossible sadness ends with unbelievable hope. Laura, I'm so thankful I get to meet you and talk to you today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and hearing your story and learning from you. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for having me. Well, I like to start off with an easy answer. Easy question, easy answer. So this is just an icebreaker. You don't have to be too philosophical about it at all. If we had a time machine and you could travel backwards or forwards in time, to any time of history, where would you like to go and why? Wow, what a question, huh? I think I'd like to travel forward to 20 years from now Mm -hmm. to where I'm situated, established, hopefully married by then, living my life, kind of having moved away. I mean, I know I'll never get, I'm not trying to run away from my past, but trying to move forward. And I feel like hopefully 20 years from now, we'll I'll have moved so far forward that it'll just be something that, that I can talk about to um, help people, but not, but it's not still holding me. You know, it's not still, I won't still feel like, it's weighing me down, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like I would love to do that and, and bypass all the stuff that's going to be necessary to get there. <laughs> yes, the going through the stuff sucks, but it's the necessary yeah. part of the journey, right? Yeah. I think that's pretty cool, actually, that you're ready to look back because hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And you're ready to just live your life and look back at this time of your life and say, oh yeah, that's when I learned that. But that was so long ago. I'm a different person, right? Yeah, yeah. I think all of us actually want that to some degree. Well, I like, I like your time travel. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I would love to hear how you grew up, Laura, what it was like um, as a child, um, some of your great, wonderful, happy, warm, fuzzy memories, and some of the things that were harder to work through and some of the hardships that built your character and who you became. So I grew up in Santa Ana, Norwich County, and I was brought there when I was three months old. So I know no other place that is home. I grew up in a house when I was little, it was just me and my brother and my older brother. My dad sold drugs, and my mom enabled, was an enabler. Mm. And um, it was pretty violent growing up in my house. It was um, a lot of fighting and arguing and 
um, physical violence. And my brother always kind of would disappear. I don't know where he would go hmm. or he would tune it out. Cause I remember one time we, my mom and dad got in a really, really bad fight. My brother was in the bathtub and completely ignoring everything that was going on outside the bathroom. So that's kind of what it was like. So it's just, I felt like it was just me all the time. Oh no. And my brother wasn't around. I felt alone a lot of times. I felt, um, plus he was older than me and, and, and a boy. So how much older than you? He's five years older than me. Okay. So there's not a lot of relativity. Like you, he didn't understand you. You didn't understand him. Right. So loneliness kind of is like the word that comes to mind when you think of your childhood. Uh, well, that's just one, you know, um, abusive, I feel is like the most accurate, you know, there was so much abuse going on. You no, know, it was in my home. It was a lot of, you know, verbal abuse and physical abuse, um, all the time. Mm. And then outside of my home, you know, my mom used to take, me away to try to get away from my dad she'd take me and 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 we'd go away but then when we would go away i began getting molested there oh, no so my mom didn't know that that was happening and so to her you know she was saving me from whatever was going on at home but really it was just another nightmare a different nightmare somebody else and um, I never told anybody. You didn't? You know, I, Why not? No. We were kind of taught, you know, because there was so much going on at home that you just didn't say anything about what was happening. And wow. so I didn't know that that was not okay. I didn't know that it wasn't happening to everybody else. I didn't know I was... I think I was about four because it was before I started school the first time. So I was too little to like know what it, whether it was right or wrong or mm-hmm. whether it was, you know, it felt weird. Yeah. But I just didn't know. I didn't know. And, and I didn't think to say anything because we were taught never to say what happens, mm. um, you know, what's going awful. on. I'm so, so sorry. There's no happy, warm, fuzzy memories then. Um, very few and wow. far between, but they're always littered with, um, you know, some dramatic chaos or something, you know. So, I mean, we did used to go like to Disneyland all the time for like everybody's birthday. We always went to Disneyland. And I remember that being something that I looked forward to all the time, you know, because I feel like my dad did it to put on airs for like the rest of the family. Like, Oh, you know, I don't, I I don't know what his intentions were to be honest. And I don't want to put his intentions out there because I don't know what they were, but I do know that we went and it was a good time. You know, we Mm -hmm. had fun and I was with my cousins and we had a good time. And I have lots of pictures of me when I was little at Disneyland and, you know, we always had a good time. Um, But now as an adult and I know the cycle of abuse, I realized, you know, that that was our honeymoon stage, mm. you know, where we were, where everything was good. And then it just turned into another cycle until he blew up again. And then mm-hmm. it was a thing, but my escape was school. I loved going to school mm-hmm. because it was the only place that I wasn't going to be abused or yelled at or whatever. Did you have lots of friends at school? Not lots of friends, but I did have friends. I always had like one really good friend. And then we always just, I learned really young. I got picked on a lot because of I'm dark skin. And um, so the girls were always brutal. So I learned really young that um, playing sports was like my escape from that. Mm-hmm. I feel like my whole life was all about you. trying to get away from the ugliness. School was your escape from home, and sports was your escape from bullying. From the school. Is that yeah. right? 
Yeah. Oh my. I learned. Goodness. Yeah, I learned really young that boys didn't care about what you looked like when you were playing sports, as long as you were good or you could. You know, I played soccer a lot in elementary school. And I'm like, as long as I can kick the ball right or block it out of the goal, they're they're happy. Like they don't care. They don't care what I look like. They don't care what I'm wearing. They don't care. They don't care. So I hung out a lot with the boys that played sports. That was kind of like my thing. And then I did extracurricular activities because I learned that like when you're doing something or you're performing, it's not about like any outward appearances as far as like your your skill set. And my dad kind of like ingrained that into me too because he didn't pay a lot of attention to us or whatever but when I started to like win awards you know and he would be drunk like he would um boast about it to his friends and stuff and so behind my back but I would always hear and I'm like oh okay this is good like this is a good thing wow the messages we get from our parents whether directly or indirectly how our parents affect our lives for good or for ill for the rest of it. Like you're saying your mindset, the way you saw the world, it all came from your parents, what you thought was right or wrong, what you thought was acceptable, what you thought was good for you. They're building your sense of self. And it doesn't sound like it was built on a very good foundation. Right. It was tough. It sounds it. And um, my, my dad did drugs um, for the greater part of my childhood. And when he when I was eight, I think I was around eight years old, he had some sort of medical emergency. I don't know if it was a heart attack or what, but it was due to the drugs. He later told me that he had prayed that day. And he asked God that if he let him live that he would stop doing drugs. So he lived through that experience. And um, I think he began to stop using at that point. And he became a Christian and he took us to church, took me to church. And, uh, but he became a fanatic. Oh no. So it turned from one addiction to the other. Uh huh. And then it created a lot of turmoil in my home. I used to, like I said, I did a lot of extracurricular activities. I was in the choir. I was in band. I was in every sport you could think of. I played everything from volleyball to basketball to, to softball, track and field. And I sang throughout all of my, till junior high, I was in choir. And um, so I participated in a lot of after school things. And we were going to church four times a week. Oh my. Um, Sometimes some of my sports activities would interfere with church. So that really upset my dad. He never went to any of my sporting things. My parents never went to any of my events. No plays, no nothing. My fifth grade promotion when I graduated from elementary school to junior high, um, nobody was there. My mom came. I was on the bleachers, I remember, and I was singing because our class was performing for the graduation. She, I felt somebody tap me and I turned around and it was my mom and she handed me this little pink box and she's like, bye. And she left. And the little pink box was a, a watch. That was it. That was the only thing that I, she didn't, nobody stayed. Same thing happened for my junior high promotion or graduation. Um, nobody showed up. I invited a lady from church. I remember she was there, but my parents weren't there. So it was one of those things, you know, where they weren't part of what I was doing at school because I was going to like events or basketball um, meets and track meets. My dad started saying that, you know, he started to get mad at me because I wasn't going to church as often. And I, he's like, I don't know what you're doing and this and that. And I was like, come to my practices. I mean, come to my games. Mm-hmm. I'm playing, you know, um, and we're really good. Like, we're going to win this year and stuff like that. And he never came. And, I can't um, imagine how that makes you feel, the rejection that comes along with that. It was tough. I'm not going to lie. Like, I mean, I tried to um, tell myself that it wasn't important because I wasn't doing it for them. And I was just doing it because for myself and it was fun. And, and it was. But 
there was just a lot of, you know, missing. Of course. And, Kids um, always want the acceptance of their parents, the affirmation of their parents. No matter how old you get, yeah. you just want them to see you. Yeah. And acknowledge, you know, oh, wow, my daughter's good at this. Wow, my daughter accomplished this. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't yeah. sound that that was spoken into your life by anyone, any teachers or anything, even um, to like substitute for the lack of the parental encouragement. Well, like I said, you know, doing sports, um, our coaches were always very encouraging. And um, so I got accolades there. And really, I got my encouragement from just like the awards that I won. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, I did try to excel at everything that I did. So I won awards in every, I mean, I won, we won a basketball championship. Um, I won, our choirs always won um, championships. I won first place in, um, I think I was in seventh grade when I won the art song competition. My Actually, that was the only event my parents attended. My dad attended the pre-selection um, and then my mom attended the final, the the semifinals, my dad was there, and the finals, my mom was there. And um, I won first place for our district um, that year. Thanks. And so it was, you know, and it felt weird to have them there because it was like, you guys are never at anything. So mm-hmm. it was it was weird. But my successes are what motivated me and drove me and moved me forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did this change, or did it change, once you reached high school? Did you stop caring about what your parents were thinking? Did you just, since you found that you could be successful all on your own, did this change your mindset at all? When I got to high school, I think I was only there for about a month before they um, kicked me out for being truant because something happened. I never ditched a day in my life for school. I I loved school. Mm -hmm. I never like didn't go to class or something like other kids. I didn't do that. But they told me that I had never, that I had not shown up for, I think it was like second period or third period since school had started. They called me into the principal's office and I was like, I don't understand because I met every single class. Like I never miss any classes. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, you've been absent for every single period, every single class since school started. And I'm like, that's impossible. Like I'm there. And um, they're like, well, you're going to have to have your parents go to the school board and you guys can talk about it there until then, you know, I was suspended for being true. Oh my goodness. Not without even confirming with the teacher or other students in the class. Like, yeah, no, they didn't, they didn't ask anybody anything. I don't know what happened there. Like to this day, I look back on that and I'm like, what happened? That seems so odd and so unlike you. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I don't understand what happened in school. Sometimes I feel like it had to happen. Like it was one of those moments where you can't explain what happened or how it happened or or why or it's so unfair, you know, because I didn't miss class. The only thing I can think of that happened is that whatever kid it was that didn't show up to class, the teacher had to have marked the wrong name. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can think of because I know it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I got kicked out and then asking my parents to go to the board to fight for me was like, please, they won't even show up to my graduation. Like they're not going to go to the board and talk on my behalf. So I started going to continuation schools and continuation schools are full of kids that are, um, you know, difficult, have a lot of issues. So I met other kids there that were being abused and that were in gangs and that were doing drugs and that were doing all this other stuff. I think, well, I skipped a pretty big part. I was 12 years old. I was going into eighth grade, I think. I don't remember. Dad had kicked me out of the house. Oh. I was 12 turning 13 because it was my 13th birthday and I wanted to go to Knott's Berry Farm with my friends. And um, initially they had agreed. And then my dad tried to change his mind at the last minute. And I got really upset. And my mom was like, don't worry about it. I'm still going to take you. So my mom snuck me out of the house and took me to Knott's Berry Farm with my friends. Well, my dad found out that I left. And when I got home, all the doors were locked. And he told me I couldn't come back in. 
And I go, why? And he's like, because I told you you couldn't go and you went. And so um, he would not let me back in the house. So I went across the street to my friend's house, spent the night there. And that was the first night of a lot of nights that I was going to spend away from home. Mm. And it was that I think was a turning point for me. Um, And then add to that going to a continuation school a year later and being exposed to like all this different stuff. It wasn't long after that. I mean, I started doing drugs, having to stay at like other people's houses. I didn't have a job. I couldn't get a job because back in those days you needed a permit. I don't know how it is now, but you needed a work permit if you were under 16 to work Mm -hmm. and your parents had to sign it. So obviously I was not going to get my parents to sign a work permit. And that's when like I started kind of like my life of crime because I had to learn to shoplift Mm -hmm. so that I could provide stuff for myself, like my hygiene and different things like that. And then I was staying at people's homes for so long that I needed to pay rent or do something. So um, I started stealing like housewares, like pots and pans and plates and things like that to give to like the mom and, you know, for letting me stay there and stuff like that. And yeah, and then I would, once all my friends' parents got tired of me, and then they started to question, you know, why is this girl not ever home? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they didn't want me in their house anymore because they didn't know what was going on. And they didn't want to get in trouble. So they couldn't help anymore. And then it was sleeping on the street oh, and trying to navigate the streets of Santa Ana back in the 90s was um, incredibly challenging. I can't Um, imagine. And how old were you? Well, when I, by the time my family, my friends' families were like kind of done with me, I was probably like 13 turning 14 because that lasted about a year. That I mean, there was so much, I was sexually assaulted so many times throughout my life. I can't even like remember everybody. Um, every time I talk about it, I did you report any, did you report any of those? None of them. No. And did your mom worry about you? Did you keep in contact with your mom at all? Did you resent your parents? Do you, did you hold anger or bitterness towards them? I did keep in touch with my mom. I have two younger sisters who I love and are the center of my soul. And so leaving them behind was really hard. So I'd always call my mom and tell her that I wanted to see my sisters. So she'd let me like come over and see them every now and then. But, you know, we traumatized them by doing all that too, because, you know, I had to teach my siblings like, okay, you can't tell your dad I was here because he'll call the cops and then, you know, I'll go to jail or whatever. And so they had to learn at a young age to not say anything either. And I felt like we were just repeating the patterns of like, nobody can say anything about what's going on at home ever. So your mom was just probably in survival mode most of her life as the victim of abuse from her husband and just whatever it took to survive, right? Right. And I mean, there was a point in my life where, you know, some of my, like one of my best friend's moms was like, she knew the story. She knew what happened. And she's like, I don't understand your mom. And I'm like, what? She goes, you know, if my husband tried to kick any of my kids out on the street, he would go before they did. Mm-hmm. I would never allow him to kick my children out on the street. And you're so young. And when she told me that, it made me stop and think. So I was like, oh my gosh, like, does my mom not love me? Mm. Like, why wouldn't she do that? Why didn't my mom do that? Mm-hmm. Why didn't she tell my dad, like, you're nuts. You're not going to kick my 12-year-old daughter out on the street. Like, why didn't she stand up for me? So that created a lot of uncertainty and questions for me growing up. And eventually I came to understand that, you know, if my mom would have stood up for me and kicked my dad out, my mom didn't have a job. My mom could not support our household. Mm-hmm. We were all going to end up homeless, mm-hmm. you know, and I think she was scared. And my dad had always held her as a prisoner mm-hmm. um, and had abused her mentally to, mm-hmm. to believe that she couldn't make it without him. Yeah. And it took a lot uh, for me to get to that point 
so that I didn't like resent my mom or hate her, I guess. I feel there was always probably some resentment because I was 12. I didn't know any other emotion at that point, like other than to resent both of my parents for doing what they did to me. Yeah. But eventually, like I said, I, I just didn't want to hate, I didn't hate her. But yeah, that was pretty much my life. I mean, and from there on, it was drugs and violence, just kind of running from every other ugly, dark corner of my life that I ever encountered. It felt like everywhere I turned, I was running into another dark corner, some mm. other trauma, some other type of abuse. And I did the best I could to try to navigate it. Um, I ended up in juvenile hall. I ended up a ward of the court. My dad had given me a black eye and I'd gone to court for a follow-up. And the judge was like, no, you know, nobody went to my court date either. I had to go by myself. And the judge no. was like, where's your parents? I'm like, I don't know. My mom dropped me off. And he's like, what? Why is your eye black? And I was like, I don't know. And I didn't want to talk. And then, you know, we went off the record and the judge was like, I'm putting you, I'm putting you in custody and you are going to become a ward of the court. So I ended up going to a group home at 14. Well, I was turning 15 that year. I AWOLed from there and then went on the run. And it was just, like I said, one thing after another, after another, it was never fun. You've been taking care of yourself and teaching yourself how to grow up for so long. It doesn't sound like you were really cared for and taught. And I mean, you're doing the best you can with the knowledge you have at the time of a 12, 13, 14 year old. I just can't imagine what that does to you mentally, psychologically, emotionally. How are you supposed to know and understand so many things? So do you never went back to school after that? Um, when I was in custody, I got my GED. Okay. So, so I was able to do that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I just, it, my heart is breaking that you didn't get the parental love and support and direction that as parents is our job. And how in the world are you supposed to function in society if you don't have a foundation to know the differences and to know? So I can, I can completely understand if you ever had a victim mentality, but in talking to you, I don't hear a trace of that whatsoever. So it seems like so many of your choices went back to, your negative choices went back to the lack of direction you had growing up, but you're not blaming them. You're not blaming right. your parents. Yeah. Have you made amends with them? Yeah. Wow. I mean, we've always, we've always been um, in contact. And then when I caught my life crime, I was 21 years old. My dad went to see me at the county jail. And because at first they wanted nothing to do with me. A few months in, I got a visit from my dad and he told me, he asked me, he said, look me in the eyes. And I said, okay. And he's like, did you do what they're accusing you of doing? And I said, no. And he's like, okay, then we'll be there. We'll fight with you and um, we'll get through this. And I was like, okay. Did you believe it at the time? Um, I think I, it was what I wanted to hear. So I allowed myself to, to believe it. Yeah. Wow. You have such a forgiving, loving heart. Despite everything. That's incredible. I'm really, really impressed by that. You said when you caught your life crime, what were you accused of doing? I was charged with uh, two attempted murders and um, a bunch of other like charges that like assault with a semi-automatic firearm, things that are related to what happened. I never denied what I did that night. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. 
DeFi's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit DeFi's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to DeFi's website and social media can be found in the show notes. I guess I can give you like a little bit of backstory of what that was about. Yeah. But at the time I was, that was like, I think the worst time of my addiction, I had begun like seeing this man, older man. He was twice my age. I was 21. He was 40 something. We were doing drugs together. It was, it was one of those things, right? He sold drugs. I don't know how I even allowed myself to... Well, I do. It was just because when you're on the streets and you're a girl and you, you know, if you're with somebody, less people mess with you, you know, especially if, yeah, if you're with a guy, you know, you're safer. So I was super codependent when I was on drugs because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always said I was super independent. I could take care of myself and I could, when I was alone, I, I took care of myself. I mean, yes, I was assaulted several times and yes, all these things happened, but for the most part, you know, all of those assaults, by the way, happened while I was asleep and I woke up to them. And I feel like because a lot of people knew that, you know, if I'm awake, like there's no way you're going to get a fight, like for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like these guys took advantage of me while I was asleep because that was the only opportunity they were going to have. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, I woke up in the middle of things and then it got bad. But when um, I met this guy, you know, he kind of promised me all these things and that, you know, we were going to get out of this lifestyle and going to get a home and get married and be a family and do all these things. And I think I wanted to believe that so bad Mm -hmm. because I was so tired. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been on the streets at that point for almost 10 years. It had been nine years. Who can blame you? I would have that hope too. So I was tired, you know, I was tired and I did, my self-esteem was like, Mm, just shot at zero. Yeah. I didn't believe I was worth saving. I didn't believe I was even like worth being wanted. So this guy comes and he tells me all these things. So I'm falling for it, of course. And then I found out he was married. So at that point I had been uh, carrying a gun because again, there was drug sales going on. He was involved in a whole lot of stuff. And I felt like I had to, you know, to protect myself. So that night we were out celebrating his birthday. That's when the wife came out and it all came to a head. I had taken off after the whole confrontation. Well, there was not a real big confrontation. It was just kind of him telling me who she was. And I was like, okay, well, I'm done. And I left and then came back because he had my money and I still needed to tip the limo driver. It was, um, there were still other people in the limo. When I came back to the house, you know, I could, he was nowhere to be found outside. He wasn't outside. So started yelling his name and his daughter came out and told me to leave. She ended up slamming the door and I thought to myself, I'm not going to get this money back. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed my gun and I, I fired it at his truck. Because I thought, okay, well, then you can use it to repair your vehicle, your truck, Mm because I was mad. I left, and I was pulled over not long after, and I was arrested, and I went to jail, and they read me my charges, and they said, oh, you're here for something serious this time. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he's like, so who died? And I was like, nobody. And then he's like, well, it says here, 187. I said, oh, no, 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 nobody died. That's wrong. And then um, he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. It says attempted murder. And then I was like, no, no, keep scrolling because that's still not right. Uh Like, no, that's not. He's like, well, what did you do? And I said, well, I fired a gun. I was like, but nobody, not at anybody or I didn't, you know. So he's like, nope, those are your charges. And I was so confused. And I was like, what? It wasn't until my public defender came to see me two weeks later. 
and he brought pictures and he explained to me that the truck that I fired at was parked next to my car and him and his wife were sitting inside my car. Well, my car or the Lincoln got hit. There was one bullet strike to that Lincoln. And so because of that bullet strike, they charged me with two attempted murders. And the truck had several bullet strikes, um, but that car had one. And so they said that I was trying to kill them. I said, I didn't even know those people were in the car. And he's like, you, my attorney was like, you didn't? And I was like, no, I was there to get my money. If I would have known he was in the car, I would have walked into the car and been like, hey, dude, give me my money. And I would have been gone. I said, I had no clue. So I told my public defender what had happened and he ended up getting a promotion. So I got another public defender and then another one. And I ended up with the one that took me to trial. And during the trial, even I felt like it was going bad. Oh, no. I was like, this is not going my way at all. This is, this sounds terrible. And my attorney was like, no, no, we're doing great. Everything's fine. I'm like, dude, it does not sound fine. It sounds like I was seriously intending to hurt these people. And I'm like, and your defense doesn't make any sense. You keep Mm -hmm. telling them that I didn't know that they were in the car. And then you're telling them that it was a crime of passion. Well, if it was a crime of passion, that, that kind of, says that I knew that they were in the car. So you're contradicting, like mm. even I'm confused. Like the jury does not, it's not following what you're saying. It's not making any sense. Then I spoke to my family over the weekend break and they said the same thing. They're like, my dad's like, it sounds really bad. I'm like, I know, I don't know why we don't just tell the truth. And then I was supposed to testify. And then at the last minute, the only thing that was keeping me okay was like, okay, whatever, it doesn't even matter because when I get up there, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell what happened and I'm not going to lie. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. He never put me on the stand. No. He told oh. me that. He's like, no, he's like, I think it, it won't be a good idea. And I'm like, no, but I really want to get up there. And he was like, I really just don't think that you should. And this and that. And he's like, but ultimately it's your decision. You know, and I go, okay, well, I've never been through a trial. You have. So I'm trusting your knowledge and what, you're gonna recommend to me he's like well i recommend that you don't get up there i'm like okay fine so i didn't get up there the jury comes back with the verdict they only deliberated for like probably 30 minutes i was found guilty on all charges and my attorney's like i should have let you testify and i'm like Thank. yeah it's a little late for that but okay and then the judge sentenced me to, um, it was two seven to life sentences with a 20 year gun enhancement. So I was sentenced to 27 to life and that was it. You were factually innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, it's almost like I mean, maybe I did. you didn't do it. It was almost as if that one bullet was like a stray bullet or ricocheted off something else to almost. That's what I think happened. I think it ricocheted because it was a small caliber weapon. Mm -hmm. Um, So even like I shot directly at the tailgate of the truck, but there's no holes. There's just strikes because it was a very small gun. So they don't penetrate. But so I'm not innocent of committing a crime. Yes, I fired a gun and I recklessly discharged a firearm and I should have done time for that. And I told my attorney that I said, I will absolutely plead to reckless discharge of a firearm. You know, um, I think the max for that was like seven years. I said, I, I, I know that I, there was kids inside that house. I know that I scared the neighborhood. I know that I know the implications of what I did was, and I know mm-hmm. that it was wrong mm-hmm. and it was traumatizing to that family. And I'm not taking away from anything of, of that. But to say that I was intending to kill these people is not right. It's, it's, it's false. It's mm-hmm. not true. So um, I ended up doing um, 15 years off of that 27 to life sentence. So what effect did prison have on you? First, you have to learn to survive on the streets. Then you have to learn to survive in prison, which was harder. I don't know which was harder. I think that they both had their pluses and minuses. Prison was hard to navigate, but it's where I found myself. Yeah. You know, I found healing there. I was able to take self-help groups. I was able to deal with my trauma in a healthy way. 
because in the group environment, there's like-minded people most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to kind of navigate through stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was when I was in groups. Prison environment is awful. Mm, I can't Especially imagine. for a woman. I can't imagine. I mean, you experience so much anger and more violence, more drugs, more of everything. I thought, well, I'm a bunch of, I'm around a bunch of girls, so at least I won't ever be, you know, subjected to any type of sexual activity that I don't want to be part of. Well, that wasn't true either. So mm. I uh, was sexually assaulted in prison a few times. I just thought to myself, like, what is it? You know, what is? I felt like like I had a sign or something. Mm-hmm. You know, on yeah. me that said like like a welcome sign. I don't know, and it would make me so angry because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing that is bringing this on. Mm-hmm. calling this type of like abuse and then of course you know we learn not to blame ourselves and that it's not our fault and so what classes in particular in prison brought you hope were there some that stood out more than others or just time with a counselor <laughs> just working through the trauma talking about it finally yeah I did get to talk to I had a therapist I talked with her a lot but then they bounced us around from therapist to therapist, did budget cuts. And so they got rid of a lot of people and I lost my, the therapist that I was really connected to. And then after that, I just bounced around from one therapist to the other. And so I was not really putting in any effort there. So I was putting in more effort during my self-help groups. And the one group that initially changed my world was life scripting. Mm-hmm. And, um, It was a group that basically taught you why you do the things that you do. And it helped you to connect the dots of your childhood trauma and how we repeat patterns over and over based on the things that we learn as kids. It really just made a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I connected to that program. I ended up becoming a facilitator and a program manager of that program. Fantastic. That's awesome. I get so like emotional when I think about it because it really did like, it changed me, you know, it changed the way that I thought and um, it empowered me to, to be like the best version of myself, despite everything that I had to face mm-hmm. or, or take on. Mm-hmm. And there was other self-help groups, you know, we took, I took, um, celebrate recovery, self-esteem classes, and anger management classes, and all different types of classes that little by little, like they all helped me. I took victims impact classes so that I understood more the impact that, you know, of of what my crimes had on other people and Mm -hmm. on my victims. Mm -hmm. So then I got to CIW, well then I got sick. I was diagnosed with this uh, borderline ovarian cancer Mm. and um, I had to get shipped out from Chowchilla to CIW and at CIW is where Defy ran their first cohort. I became part of the very first Defy cohort at CIW. Wow! It was such a blast. Defy was one of those programs that made me feel important for once. You know, like, I'm like, people are seriously, like, not just anybody, not that I attribute more value to, like, entrepreneurs and other people, but I'm like, these people are literally, like, we had angel investors come in and people that worked at, like, all these different places. And I'm like, they're taking time out of their business and their their families and their everything to come and share in this experience with us. It made you feel special. It sounds no. like it made it brought your dignity back, your humanity. Yeah, that's it, beautiful. Yeah. We all need reassurance of that, but especially those of you who are in prison at the moment. I imagine the dehumanization and the 
the lack of dignity is a huge blow to your self-esteem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny that people don't understand. Like, I feel like sometimes I would see groups come in and they would like do all these amazing things for us. Right. And, and um, like we had this event called Kairos, which was um, through the church. What the women would do is it would just be a bunch of women. A lot of times it was older women would come in and basically we would just have like a little retreat. And the only thing that would happen during that retreat was these women would love on us with their attention and they would feed us like cookies and pastries beyond your week. I don't, my sugar probably shot up like 400 points over that weekend. Oh my um, but in prison, you don't get that stuff. You don't get love. Yeah. And so yeah. to be seated at a table and they don't let us get up and get anything. So there's servers that come and bring you like, I'm not kidding, trays that are mountains of different types of pastries, coffee, milk, orange juice, whatever you want. And you're being served like a princess. It's stuff like that that makes you feel valued. And um, Defy did that too. It was just like, I remember our graduation was so I don't even I don't even have a word to describe the Defy graduation. It was astounding. Like they allowed us to bring two people in and I invited my parents and I remember the conversation. You think it would be like, oh yeah, I'm graduating, you know, um, they're inviting you guys come. It was like a more serious conversation. I like told my mom and dad, like, put me on speaker. I need to talk to both of you. It was like a real serious thing. I said, look, I'm graduating from this entrepreneurship program. It's a big deal. We're allowed to invite two people from the streets to come to the graduation. Do you guys want to come? And they, my mom and dad were like, yeah, we want to come. And I said, no, if you say yes, you better be there. This isn't going to be junior high all over again or elementary, if you do not come, I promise you, I will not speak to you ever again in my life. Mm. Because if you don't want to come, that's fine. Just say you're not going to come so I can invite two other people. Mm -hmm. But if you're telling me you're going to come, I have to put you on this list and there's no changing your mind and no game time decisions. Oh, I'm not going to go. No, you're going to come. And I was so scared that they weren't going to be there. I don't blame you. It sounds like the first time you stood up for yourself to them. Yeah. But they came. Yay. Yeah. Wow. What an impact that must have made. Yeah. Like setting your boundary worked. Yeah. And it was the first time I had seen my dad because my dad um, would visit me when I was in the county jail. But um, once I went to prison, he never went to see me. So it had been at that point, I had been in prison almost 10 years. No, you hadn't seen him for 10 years. Yeah. Did their coming like acknowledge the hard work you put in to the Defy classes? Like, did you feel legitimate? Like, look at, they're going to acknowledge and see me for who I am and how smart I am and what I can accomplish. And did they? Yeah. Good. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. My dad was just like incredibly proud, you know, and then um, my boss was there that day too. She was a community resource manager. So she was there and um, she got a chance to talk to my dad and she told him like, let me tell you about your daughter and what she does in here. Mm. Wow. And so, because when you're in prison and you're doing stuff, like your family doesn't really know like what, what is a group? Like, what does that even mean? What do you mean you're a facilitator? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. They don't understand like what it means. And um, I was so grateful for that moment because she got to tell him, like, you know, your daughter is sought after by a lot of her peers. She mentors them. She, they used to joke with me at work because a lot of my participants would come and look for me and um, they just wanted to talk, you know, and vent Mm. their frustrations and their problems and whatever. And I would sit there and listen to them. And so my boss was like, we need to get Laura a couch, you know, because she, 
she is over here being a therapist to these these troubled people and troubled kids, you know, and troubled. Wow. I'm like, yeah, I think I don't want a couch, but maybe a really big comfy chair for them to sit in. That would be good for them, not for me. What a beautiful testament to your true transformation, heart and mind. Do you feel like prison saved your life? Would you have been alive I do. I do. otherwise? Yeah. I feel like if I hadn't gone to prison, um, I'd probably be dead. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you're not because look at all that you've offered to humanity, all the beauty that came out of the hardship. Yeah. You are a truly transformed person. Would you say your resilience uh, through the Defy Ventures program was based on the idea of entrepreneurship or was it the mentorship or was it the, the volunteers who made you feel or maybe it was the mentors as well who made you feel dignified again? I think it was a combination of all of those things. Mm-hmm. I think um, it was them instilling in, in us entrepreneurship and that um, like their tagline, you know, is transform your hustle. It was understanding that you could take the negative stuff of your life and kind of transform it into something good that was going to benefit you and that there was people that were willing to invest not just their their time and their energy, but their money, you know, and for somebody to put their money on you is huge, right? And to know that there was people out there who knew that we were in prison, who knew that we had checkered past and were still willing to invest their money in our ideas and in our in our futures was like wow I think all of it combined helped to rejuvenate my belief in myself Mm -hmm. and further empowered me to be strong and to you know make it Mm -hmm. and um, once I was released from I got released early when when was Um, that Last year, I've been out one year. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I was released early for, it was Penal Code 1170D1, which is basically for rehabilitative efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, they acknowledged, like, you know, I started so many different organizations and programs and facilitated them, and it would take too long probably to go down the list of things that I, I did, but somebody took notice. They submitted my, uh, my name up for a sentence, um, like reduction type of thing. I remember seeing a number, a statistic at the time when my name had gone up, the CDCR secretary had sent out a total of, in February of 2019, I think. In 2019, the CDCR secretary had um, issued 34 letters back to the sentencing courts for people to be resentenced. I was one of those 34, which I I have a really good friend of mine um, who did the math and she's like, do you realize that that's like, because there's like about 150,000 prisoners in California. She's like, that's like a 0.04 or something percent. She's like, do you understand like how amazing that is? Like how big of a deal that is? I was like, whoa, you know, when she put it in those terms, I was like, yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool, you know? That is. Yes, and you accomplished um, a big, your deal was a big accomplishment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I came out to court and uh, waited for the judge to make his decision. He elected to reduce my sentence and give me credit time served. And I was released 10 days later. Ah, oh, what a dream come true. And how was your reentry? Did things go smoothly? Were you able to find a job right away? How, how did that all work out for you? Well, first of all, as soon as I got out, um, I contacted Defy. They were super supportive. Juan was the Southern California director, I believe, at the time. He went above and beyond to make sure that I was okay. You know, awesome. they gave me my laptop. I remember too, he went out of his way and he brought me clothes. Wow. Genuinely caring. Yeah. Because I didn't have any. It's those little things that make a difference. It is. It is. Um, I participated in uh, some of the 
justify uh, like meetings uh, the first couple of weeks that I was out because I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything to do. I, it was about 30 days after I got out, I got a job. I got a car, I found a place to stay and I started to grind. Defy also offered us a mentor program with BetterUp and I participated in that. So I had my own personal mentor for a while. Mm. It was super cool. Awesome. Because I mean, I got to touch base with him every week, just kind of like unload. And, you know, he's like, so where do you want to go? He kind of helped me get my goals like lined up and, you know, life happened. So, you know, we're in different stages of our lives and and life doesn't care that I just got out and it doesn't care that I don't have everything that I need to succeed yet. But, you know, my dad just got sick. We've been having lots of car problems lately and it's just finances have been so, so tough right now, but I won't give up. Good. And I know that this is all temporary and life's not always going to be this hard. And I always tell myself like, just look back at what you've been through. And if you can get through that, you're going to get through this and Good. it's going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's hard some days. I'm not going to lie. Some days it's just like, I want to give up. And I'm just like, it's so hard. Yeah. But I won't, I know I won't because there's other people that are coming behind me mm-hmm. that are coming home from prison mm-hmm. and I don't want them to ever give up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if nothing else, at least for people to be able to see my journey and be like, you know what, if she can do it, I can do it. Yeah. To have that, that sense of determination and strength and to know that I can, I can do it. I think it's a really wise mindset to have because we have this illusion in our heads that we think everything should always go good if we're doing everything right or good. But that's not reality. Reality is life sucks and there's cycles in life. And sometimes it's just extra hard and sometimes it's extra awesome. And sometimes things go well when you're doing bad. And sometimes things go bad when you're doing well. Like That's the normal cycle of life. And I'm glad you're able to, that doesn't help make you spiral down, but that you're embracing. This is where I am right now. I'm still good. I'm still worthy. I'm still loved. And I'm glad you're it sounds like in a very healthy place mentally. Yes. Uh, one last question before we close. If you could give any advice to the general public about either the prison system in general or formerly incarcerated people in particular, what would you like to say? So much. I guess I'd want to say people change. You know, and you, you just, you never know what somebody has gone through that has led them to that point in their life. I remember Catherine Hope from Defy had said, what if people only judged you by the worst thing you've ever done? And I remember when she said that, I was like, Gosh, I wish everybody could be asked that question. Mm-hmm. You know, because running from our past doesn't work. You can't get far enough away from it. My criminal history follows me everywhere I go. Employment, education, in public circles, social circles. You know, a lot of people say, you know, what I've been through doesn't define me. But people judge. If we all judged each other based on the worst thing we've ever done, nobody would like anybody that's the truth yes and so just because somebody actually went to jail for the worst thing they ever did and maybe you didn't get caught or maybe um, what you did wasn't illegal but it hurt somebody or broke somebody's heart or whatever who are we to judge which sin is bigger than the other yes Um, yes excellent there's no hierarchy. Right. Sin, and so right. I think I would just want people to just have a little more compassion and empathy 
understanding, mercy, give give each other grace mm-hmm. to be wrong sometimes, to make mistakes, and also give them the grace to learn from those mistakes and to be like, you know what? Yeah, that was pretty bad what you did, but did you learn from it? Yes. You Isn't know? that the ultimate goal in life for right. all of us to learn from our past, from our mistakes, not to punish us constantly over and over and over again for them. Yeah. Because you have to keep living. You have to keep going forward. Yeah. Beautiful. And that's words. the other thing too. You're, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's so funny because I was just going to say, every time that you judge somebody that's been in prison or that's still there, you're punishing them all over again. Mm. You're sentencing them all over again. Mm-hmm. I'm writing that down right now. It's very good. Thank you for sharing such wisdom from your lived experience. All right, we've made it to the end. I've got three easy closing questions. The first one is, what is your one tip to make the world a better place? Forgive each other. I'm sorry, you cut out forgive what? Each other. Forgive each other. Mm-hmm. I can tell you have applied that to your own life because you seem to have just a tone of forgiveness in your demeanor, in your voice, um, towards your parents, towards the situations that happened to you that truly impresses me. Um, I don't know that I would have the same. So I can tell that you've experienced the beauty of that in your life. What are you the most thankful for right now? I think I'm the most thankful for my network, my support network. Mm, I don't think that can be overstated, can it? Yeah. Yeah, we all need people. They help me through, you know, I've, I've been part of different organizations since I've been out, and they all, you know, uplift me and they encourage me and they, they're just amazing people. Good. I'm glad you have that in your life. All right. Lastly, what is your favorite quote? The quote that I live by, which kind of circles back around, is just, you know, do unto others as you would like done unto you. I like that one. Yeah. What if we all did that? Could you imagine the repercussions? (laughs) Right. Wow. Maybe we'd be okay. (laughs) Maybe we would be. And in 20 years, you'll see the beauty of that, the reap the rewards, huh? Yes. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for sadly reliving the trauma that was your childhood and sharing your story with us, but showing us that good can even come out of that, that beauty can rise up from the ashes and look at how, how you're doing. Look at the lives you're touching because of your story. It's not perfect, but it's yours. And the truth is nobody has a perfect story. Yeah. So thank you for sharing and thank you for teaching me and all of us. You said something just so profound, but so simple. People change. That's what I'm going to think of when I think of you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you for this opportunity to share my story. I'm super grateful for the work that you're doing. I feel like it's so important for people to know that there's more to people than just their rap sheet. Yes. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. After hearing Laura's story, the words that come to mind are determined, brave, compassionate, strong, forgiving, teachable, and resilient. She was dealt a terrible hand in this life. She confesses to her mistakes without playing the victim. She wakes up every day and chooses to better herself and help others. Her life is a testament to this. It seems that many prison programs are what help bring about healing in so many broken souls who found themselves incarcerated. They are finally in a place to learn things they were never taught to grow in understanding, education, and empathy, as well as heal themselves through the help of therapists, uh, dogs, and volunteers 
who assert their worthiness to be loved even when they themselves can't yet see it. Dr. Vanderkolk, the author of the famed book, The Body Keeps the Score, says, We have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. It is also the imprint left by the experience on mind, brain, and body. This imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism manages to survive in the present. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way the brain and mind manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. This is of paramount importance for all of us to learn. The trauma Laura experienced in childhood shaped the rest of her life. Thankfully, she came to learn this and dealt with her trauma head on. May we all learn to do the hard work, just as Laura has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.